touching hands Reaching out Touching me Touching you Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week is the little book that could, about a little girl that could. A quick little story that plunges an 11 year old girl into a world stripped of all comfort. Into not necessarily a supernatural landscape, but the even more frightening landscape of the natural world. And the few hundred pages that we spend with the titular character, we see just how scary our real world can be. And more importantly, how brave we can be when we refuse to let the fear overtake us. Today, I'll be reviewing 1999's The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. Now this is a quick, fun little romp through the woods of a novel. If it was released today, I guarantee you that it would be billed as Stephen King's young adult novel. It's short enough, and it focuses on a young heroine who will overcome great conflict. It's a novel that I have a rudimentary memory of reading. Maybe it's because not a lot happens, which isn't to say that it's boring, because it isn't. But when it first came out, I wanted monsters. I wanted the supernatural. And when I realized that I wasn't going to get that, I either consciously or unconsciously didn't fully invest myself into what King was doing with the narrative. Which isn't fair to King, and it isn't fair to Trisha, the girl who loved Tom Gordon. This is a novel that I've been really looking forward to rereading because I'd be able to experience it without any preconceived expectations. I would be able to judge it um, for what it was and not judge it for what it was not the way that I had the first time around. I just want to jump into this small stakes survivalist tale set along the Appalachian Trail. But before I get any further, what I want to do right now, I want to read a listener's email. So everyone, I think that you know that um, I love getting emails from, from all of you, so feel free to send them on in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And I am going to be reading a, re um, a listener email this week from Mikhail. I don't know how the, the pronunciation should be, so Mikhail or Mikkel, I... I think it's actually Mikkel. Mikkel, I apologize if I get your name pronunciation incorrect. So, Mikkel writes, To quote Gaff from Blade Runner, You have done a man's job, sir. Or rather, you are doing a man's job. Thank you for a really remarkable podcast. I can't begin to imagine the amount of work you put into it, but you need to know it's much appreciated. I might not belong to the most hardcore fans of Stephen King, but I find his books very enjoyable and inspiring, and your podcasts adds even more flavor to the books and the whole universe they are a part of. Your examination of the references to the Dark Tower is really interesting, even though I have very mixed feelings about the books, and it is evident that you have spent a good deal of time thinking about it. Sometimes it makes me wonder, or perhaps hope, that I missed something in my reading of the books because my journey through them felt more like a chore and many people seem to love them so much, but I love the ending. I will think I will elaborate on my experiences with the Dark Tower at a later date when I have built a shelter which can withstand the hordes of angry SK fans. 
And please do not take this as a criticism of your podcast. It's not. In fact, I like the talk of the Dark Tower books more than the books themselves. All right, there I go again. Sorry. Um... So I just, uh, Mikhail, I, I just wanted to, to just thank you for, for um, writing in. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't think that you have to worry about hordes of angry Stephen King fans. I mean, I think that this is a, a safe space for you to be able to share your thoughts. Um, so feel free to write in um, and, and share your thoughts on The Dark Tower because The Dark Tower is divisive among Stephen King fans. There are those that just can't get into it. And, you know, clearly I have spent a lot of time talking about The Dark Tower, so you're everyone's getting my perspective here. But I, I do want to hear from people that aren't as enamored with The Dark Tower series because I, I think that we, we need that balance um, out there. So please, please write in, share your thoughts, and anybody else that has any feelings on Stephen King or The Dark Tower, feel free to write in as well. And if you guys have not done so already, feel free to head on over to iTunes to write a review. Um, and if you are not subscribing through iTunes and you have an iPhone or, or whatever, um, a subscription would really go a long way as well in getting the, the Stephen King cast out there. Um, I don't make any money off of it, so, I mean, if you subscribe, it's not like money's going into my pocket, uh, but it, it definitely does promote the, the Stephen King cast so more people can enjoy this. All right, everyone, so what I'm going to do now, I'm going to get back into the world of the White Mountains, and I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary for The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. The story is set in motion by a family hiking trip during which Trisha's brother Pete and mother constantly squabble about the mother's divorce from their father as well as other topics. Trisha falls back to avoid listening and is therefore unable to find her family again after she wanders off the trail to take a bathroom break. Trying to catch up by attempting a shortcut, she slips and falls down a steep embankment and ends up hopelessly lost, heading deeper into the heart of the forest. She is left with a bottle of water, two Twinkies, a boiled egg, a tuna sandwich, a bottle of Surge, a poncho, a Game Boy, and a Walkman. Now and then she listens to her Walkman to keep her mood up, either to learn of the news or the search for her, or listen to the baseball game featuring her favorite player and heartthrob Tom Gordon. As she starts to take steps to survive by conserving what little food she has with her and consuming edible flora, her mother and brother return to their car without her and call the police and start a search. The rescuers search in the area all around the path, but not as far away as Trisha has gone. The girl decides to follow a creek because of what she read in Little House on the Prairie, although it soon turns into a swamp-like river, rationalizing that all bodies of water lead eventually to civilization. As the cops start searching for the night, she huddles up underneath a tree to rest. Eventually, a combination of fear, hunger, and thirst causes Trisha to hallucinate. She imagines several people from her life, as well as her hero, Tom Gordon, appearing to her. It is left unclear whether increasingly obvious signs of supernatural events in the woods are also hallucinations. Hours and days begin to pass, with Trisha wandering further into the woods. Eventually, she begins to believe that she is headed for a confrontation with the God of the Lost, a wasp face evil entity who is hunting her down. Her, trail, sorry, her trial becomes a test of a nine-year-old girl's ability to maintain sanity in the face of seemingly certain death. Racked with pneumonia and near death, she comes upon a road, but just as she discovers signs of civilization, she is confronted by a bear, which she interprets as the god of the lost in disguise. Facing down her fear, she realizes that it's the bottom of the ninth, and she must close the game. 
In imitation of Tom Gordon, she takes a pitcher's stance and throws her Walkman like a baseball, hitting the bear in the face and startling it enough to make it back away. A hunter who has come upon the confrontation between girl and beast frightens the beast away and takes Trisha to safety, but Trisha knows that she earned her rescue. Trisha wakes up in a hospital room. She finds her divorced parents and older brother waiting near her bedside. A nurse tells the girl's family that they must leave so that Trisha can rest because her numbers are up and we don't want that. Her father is the last to leave. Before he does, Trisha asks him to hand her her Red Sox hat, autographed by Tom Gordon, and she points towards the sky just as Tom Gordon does when he closes a game. Analysis The first thing to note about The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon is that it's short, just over 200 pages. Now, this was a disappointment to me when it was first published because upon first publication, at that time, I wanted uh, books the length of the stand. But for the podcast rereading purposes, when it came time to reread The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, it was like a cool glass of water after having spent the day in the sun. It was so refreshing. And because King isn't going to spend much time with our main character, he's not going to waste any time in this book, as evidenced from the the novel's um, opening. So he writes, The world had teeth, and it could bite you with them any time it wanted. Trisha McFarlane discovered this when she was nine years old. At 10 o'clock on a morning in early June, she was sitting in the backseat of her mother's Dodge Caravan wearing her blue Red Sox batting practice jersey, the one with the 36 Gordon on the back, and playing with Mona, her doll. At 10.30, she was lost in the woods. By 11, she was trying not to be terrified, trying not to let herself think, this is serious, this is very serious, trying not to think that sometimes when people got lost in the woods, they got seriously hurt. Sometimes they died. King quickly establishes the conceit of the novel, that a nine-year-old girl gets lost in the woods and provides the context around it, specifically her parents' divorce and the subsequent anger directed towards her mother while on a hike. We get the quick background of the emotional landscape in which the shattered remains of her family currently reside, and we learn how she's able to escape by thinking about her favorite Red Sox player, Tom Gordon. All of this is established in nine pages, and with that done, we are ready to go. As they begin their hike, Pete and Quilla, Trisha's brother and mother, begin arguing with one another. Trisha has time to make a quick prayer. Please, God, send something, a deer or a dinosaur or UFO, because if you don't, they're going right back at it. Unfortunately for her, God is going to grant her her wish, except the thing they'll bond over is Trisha's upcoming disappearance. She gets tired of their fighting and decides to pee. When finished, she chooses not to follow the path, but to cut through the woods in between the paths to meet up with her family, a decision that's going to cost her dearly. It's crazy accurate, which is terrifying. She only walks into the woods for about 10 minutes, and that's all that it takes. 10 minutes, and the woods completely swallow her whole. And she doesn't panic. She realizes that She's not where she's expected to be, tries to get back, encounters a snake, which to a nine-year-old girl is terrifying, but still, she doesn't panic. 
The bugs are all already overwhelming, which cause her to pull out her backpack and see if she can find any bug spray, which is one of the only things that she doesn't have. We learn that she has a poncho, a lunch, a Game Boy, suntan lotion, bottle of water, bottle of Surge, Twinkies, and a bag of chips. It hits her then that she's lost, and King captures this moment wonderfully. At this point, she panics and runs, and she runs so blindly she nearly runs off of a cliff. She looks over the valley and sees nothing but trees and building storm clouds in the distance. And when she faints here, it's completely understandable why she does so. When she wakes up, the building storm clouds are releasing their contents upon her. Even worse, lightning starts striking all around her. Less than 50 pages in, King has effectively placed us in her predicament. We've seen from previous King novels that he's not above killing a child, so there's nothing to guarantee Trisha's safety. As he always does, King grounds us in the emotional truth. In this case, how Trisha continues to juxtapose her current situation with the more normal life she's already left behind and may never return to. She could see the shadows over her heads and hands, thrown by overhead light on the Formica counter. She could hear the sounds of the TV news from the living room. She could hear the creaks as her brother moved around upstairs. The memory had a hallucinogenic clarity that elevated it almost to the status of a vision. She felt like someone who drowns, remembering what it was like to still be on the boat, so calm and at ease, so carelessly safe. Trisha then finds her Walkman, whose cassette that uh, it currently houses is one of the staples of the 90s. The one hit wonder you're going to have stuck in your head for at least a week. You're welcome, guys. After you finish with this review, the deeply inspirational ballad, Tub Thumpin' by Chumbawamba. The food that she snacks on and the radio is enough to calm her nerves. The voices through the headphones remind her that there are indeed other people in this world which give her some measure of safety. King knows that being lost is not going to be enough. Now, at the top of the podcast, I mentioned how when I first read this, I was disappointed with the fact that we didn't have an overt supernatural threat. And we might not get an overt supernatural threat, but sometimes you don't need the supernatural when the natural will do. First, it's the snake that welcomes her to the wilderness. Then, it's the ever-present cloud of mosquitoes that treat her like an all-you-can-eat buffet. Then it's the wop nest that comes alive and attacks her. As she makes her way down a slope, she's stung once, and then subsequent tumbles takes her down to the nest itself, and the wasp attack is frightening. She has time to think that if she has an allergic reaction, she'll die. A frightening prospect in any situation. Doubly frightening when you take into account how vulnerable she is. King rightfully points out, now her parents' divorce seemed like very small beans. There were bigger problems than grown-ups who couldn't get along. There were wasps, for one thing. And as I had stated in my review of the Tommyknockers, while King has placed most of his stories in Maine, he hasn't really explored the woods all that often. That's what makes the, uh, the, the Tommyknockers a great read. If you strip away all of the, the cosmic weirdness, uh, which I don't want you to because I love the Tommyknockers for all the cosmic weirdness. At its core, it's really about a mystery in the woods. And here, King is able to present his love letter to the woods. On page 60. 
Trisha had never felt as much like a town girl as she did while that miserable, terrifying day was winding down toward dark. The woods came in clenches, it seemed to her. For a while, she would walk through great old stands of pine, and there the forest seemed almost all right, like woods in a Disney cartoon. Then one of those clenches would come, and she would find herself struggling through snarly clumps of scrubby trees and thick bushes, all too many the latter kind with thorns. Frightening, fighting past interlaced branches that clawed for her arms and eyes. Their only purpose seemed to be obstruction, and as mere tiredness slipped towards exhaustion, Trisha began to impute them with actual intelligence, a sly and hurtful awareness of the outsider in the ragged blue poncho. It began to seem to her that their desire to scratch her, to perhaps even get lucky and poke out one of her eyes, was actually secondary. What the bushes really wanted to was to shunt her away from the brook, her path to other people, her ticket out. Um... I said that that was a love letter. Um, you know, there's not a <laughs> sorry, not a lot of love, but I think that's a great uh, a great example of of how he's able to capture uh, life in the woods. If things couldn't get worse, Trisha starts to realize that it doesn't matter that she's been reported missing. That is not going to help her right now, and this means that she's going to have to spend a night in the woods. This allows the dread to start to grow. To keep her mind off of the dark, she listens to the Red Sox game and finds strength when Tom Gordon strikes out the final batter for a Red Sox win over their dreaded rivals, the New York Yankees. Then, later that night, it's almost as if King can't help himself. A puff of air moved through the woods, ruffling the leaves, shaking the last of the rainwater from them. After a second or two, the air fell still. Then it was not still. In the dripping quiet came the sound of twigs breaking. Then stopped, and there was a pause followed by a flurry of moving branches and a rough rasping sound. A crow called once in alarm. There was a pause, and then the sounds began again, moving closer to where Trisha slept with her arm. So, <clears throat> like I'd, I've said a couple times already, when I first read this, there was disappointment that there wasn't, oh, I don't know, there, there wasn't uh, your Stephen King monster, right, in these woods. Kind of. You know, I mean, it's open to interpretation. I didn't want interpretation. I just wanted, I, I wanted a boogeyman, 100%. I wanted a rich mythology. I wanted Tack from Desperation to be in these woods, you know, with her, which again is not fair because I'm judging the book, or I was judging the book for what it was not rather than what it was. But here it's clear that he is giving us something. And it's up to us to decide for ourselves what this something is going to be. Is it going to be the God of the Lost or is it just going to be a bear? That's up to us. Now, this same night that Trish is in the woods, King continues to remind us that he is great at scaring us. So he writes... The moonlight wasn't as good a thing as she'd thought, either. It was bright in the clearing, true, but it was a deceptive brightness that made everything look simultaneously too real and not real at all. Shadows were too black, and when a breeze stirred the trees, the shadows changed in a disquieting way. Something twitted in the woods, seemed to choke, twittered again, and was silent. An owl hooted far off. Closer, too, 
A branch snapped. What was that? Trisha thought, turning towards the snapping sound. Her heartbeat began to ramp up from a walk to a jog to a run. In another few seconds, it would begin sprinting, and then she might be sprinting as well, panicked all over again and running like a deer in front of a forest fire. Nothing. It was nothing, she said. Her voice was low and rapid, very much her mother's voice, although she did not know this. Nor did she know that in a motel room 30 miles from where Trisha stood by the fallen tree, her mother had sat, out, sat up out of a troubled sleep, still half dreaming with her eyes open, sure that something awful had happened to her lost daughter or was about to happen. The thing you, it's the thing you hear, Trisha, said the cold voice. Its tone was sad on top, unspeakably gleeful underneath. It's coming for you. It's got your scent. There is no thing, Trisha said in a desperate, whispery voice that broke into complete silence each time it wavered upward. Come on, give me a break. There is no thing. The unreliable moonlight had changed the shapes of the trees had turned them into bone faces with black eyes. The sound of two branches, 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 rubbing, rubbing, rubbing together became the clotted croon of stones. Trisha turned in a clumsy circle, trying to look everywhere at once, her eyes rolling in her muddy face. It's a special thing, Trisha, the thing that waits for the lost ones. It lets them wander until they're good and scared because fear makes them taste better. It sweetens the flesh, and then it comes for them. You'll see it. It'll come out of the trees any minute now, a matter of seconds, really. And when you'll see its face, you'll go insane. If there was anyone to hear you, they'd think you were screaming. But you'll be laughing, won't you? Because that's what insane people do when their lives are ending. They laugh, and they laugh, and they laugh. Stop it, there's no thing, there's no thing in the woods, you stop it! She whispered this very fast, and the hand holding the nub of dead branch clutched it tighter and tighter until it broke with a loud report like a starter's gun. The sound made her jump and utter a little scream, but it also steadied her. She knew what it was, after all, just a branch, and one she had broken. She could still break branches. She still had that much control over the world. Sounds were just sounds. Shadows were just shadows. She could be afraid. She could listen to that stupid traitor of a voice if she wanted to. But there was no thing, special thing, in the woods. There was wildlife, and there was undoubtedly a spot of the old killer-be-killed going out there at this very second but there was no Cree. There is, and there was. Now, stopping all of her thoughts and holding her breath without realizing it, Trisha knew with a simple, cold certainty that there was. There was something. Inside her at that moment, no voices, only a part of her she didn't understand, a special set of eclipsed nerves that perhaps slept in the world of houses and phones and electric lights and came fully alive only out here in the woods. That part didn't see and couldn't think, but it could feel. Now it felt something in the woods. This continues. It's just a great scene where it's intercutting between Trisha's ordeal in the woods at night to we've seen her her mother now we see her father um sitting in in his his hotel room you know and then you know we we have Trisha back in the woods uh hearing something moving through the trees it's 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 just another example of how good Stephen King is at just crafting a spooky scene King revs the engine just a little bit here. I mean, he's the guy that brought the Overlook to life. 
swarmed Salem's lot with a horde of vampires, gave Cujo rabies, made the sound of run-down cowboy boot heels on pavement the scariest thing in the world, made us think twice about walking past a sewer grate, gave us that zombie cat in Pet Cemetery, and so much more. So this might be a tale of survival. This is still a Stephen King story. And he's going to tease the terror because if you're nine years old in the woods, everything is going to have a malevolent presence. From this point forward, the mystery isn't just, will Trisha survive in the woods? Now we have, is there a monster in the woods as well? King elbows us in the ribs here, making us think that yes, there is indeed a monster because miles away, like I'd already said, Quilla awakens, certain that her daughter is in imminent danger. Now, is this because there's a supernatural presence at work, much in the same way that Victor Pascal visited Rachel Creed to warn her about Lewis? Or is it maternal instinct kicking in because at that moment, Trisha has convinced herself that there's a monster in the woods with her? Regardless, Trisha survives that night, and she continues to follow the stream the next day, only to find out that the stream peters out and ends in a deadwood swampland. Surprisingly, Trisha does not give in to despair, which is what I know that I would do if I was in that situation, and decides to press on regardless. The hours-long journey takes her through a stagnant swamp, vividly detailed. Eventually, the swamp leads to a section of the forest where the trees have been uprooted, and Trisha can see red on the leaves and hear the buzzing of a billion flies. She instinctively knows that this can't be good, and the reader should immediately think of death. This is confirmed when she discovers the decapitated head of a deer. When she starts to try to tell herself that this isn't the work of a monster, she sees claw marks on the bark of nearby trees. So at this point, the reader should be questioning what exactly is going on here. Is this just nature or is there a monster? So you can kind of go back and forth on your own, but I know that when I read this the first time, when I reread it the second time, I thought, okay, well, if it's a monster, I just, I'm sorry, if it's a bear or a larger creature, I, I just can't see the bear decapitating a deer and leaving it behind like that. So I started thinking, it's a monster. So though her journey through the wilderness takes place in a forest that you and I could visit, it adapts itself to fit the needs of, of this narrative. Specifically, the physical features mirror her mood and then change to test her. It's as if her unseen adversary is testing her to see if she'll give in to despair. What is the bog and the swamp but the physical manifestation of the death of hope? Yet Trisha doesn't let herself sink into that dead water. She presses on. When she's making progress and perseverance, um, she's burning away the fear. What happens? The monster places the deer head to scare her off, but she continues on. And because she makes it through this despair, she's rewarded with solid ground and life represented through the return of the green forest. And as if it wants to pollute the cleanliness of the green, the thing dumps the rest of the deer corpse. But still, she doesn't give in to the fear, and she's rewarded by finding another scream, stream, a more powerful one. After she drinks, and from it suffers from diarrhea and vomiting, she begins to see Tom Gordon with her. 
Whereas the forest had been dark and mysterious before, it begins to reveal its beauty to her, with splashing fish and grazing deer. She then imagines that she sees three robed men, or is she imagining it? Each one represents a different belief. One is the god that Tom Gordon points to. One is the sub-audible, and the third, in black, comes from the god of the lost. The sub-audible reveals that it's very weak, and unsurprisingly has the face of her father. This monk is very drunk as well, confirming through inference that Trish's father uh, and his drinking problem is the root of the parents' divorce. That night, she witnesses the beauty of the world. She broke off, drawing swift breath in over her lower lip as if it hurt. White fire scratched the sky as one of the stars fell. The streak ran halfway across the black and then winked out. Not a star, of course, not a real star, but a meteor. There was another and then another. Trisha sat up, the split rags of her poncho falling into her lap, her eyes wide. Here was a fourth and a fifth, these going in different directions. Not just a meteor, but a meteor shower. As if something had only been waiting for her to understand this, the sky lit up in a silent storm of bright contrails. Trisha stared, neck tilted, eyes wide, arms crossed over her breastless chest, hands clutching her shoulders with nervous nail-bitten fingers. She had never seen anything like it, never dreamed there could be anything like it. Oh, Tom, she whispered in a trembling voice. Oh, Tom, look at this. Do you see? Most were momentary white flashes, thin and straight and gone so quickly that they would have seemed like hallucinations if there hadn't been so many of them. A few, however, five, perhaps eight, lit up the sky like silent fireworks, brilliant stripes that seemed to burn orange at the edges. That orange might have just been eye-dazzle, but Trisha didn't think so. The next day, she continues to show her resilience by catching a fish and eating it raw. The stream she follows once again comes to an abrupt ending. It's here, with about 60 pages left to go, where King really sticks it to us. He presents Trisha with a choice. Which way should she go? Unfortunately, she chooses to head not in the direction that would lead to a summer destination. Okay, so there's the, a lake with all these people that would be there, right? And she'd be saved instantly. But instead, she heads toward the Canadian wilderness, 400 miles of nothing. It's just one of those moments in the books that just makes you go, oh, it's just, it's a devastating blow. And it just really makes you just really tense up. She then experiences hallucinations of seeing a giant face under a stream of a giant cathedral of trees, of a thousand mutilated deer, of waking up with something pressing down on her chest. This last one is a sensation that has afflicted many people throughout the centuries and has been attributed to uh, possession and hauntings. Now, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of the time people will imagine seeing a, a horse-faced creature staring at them while they're immobilized. It's been attributed to night terrors, something which thankfully I've never experienced, but the concept is something that, that fascinates me and I believe is the subject of a documentary American Nightmare, I think I is the name of it. I'm not quite sure, but there is a documentary about night terrors if you are interested in, in that sort of thing. 
Now at this point, Trisha has been gone for a week, which is crazy. And as she is at the tail end of life, she stumbles upon what used to be a gate, her first glimpse of civilization since getting lost in the first place. She's told by Tom Gordon that this is her last chance. After praying to God, not the subaudible, she discovers the path. It's such an uplifting moment, and Trisha follows it to find an abandoned truck which she takes shelter in during a thunderstorm. It's at this point that the God of the Lost emerges from the shadows and Trisha gets her first real look at it. She rejects it and awakens the next morning alive but discovers that it has drawn a possessive circle around the truck, marking her for his own. The ending is incredibly tense, dehydrated, exhausted, emaciated. She follows the road, stalked the entire way by the God of the Lost. Each step takes more out of her, but she continues nevertheless until she stumbles upon pavement. You'd think that once she makes it to pavement, the surest sign of civilization, that she is finally saved. But it's at this moment, when she hears the rumble of an approaching vehicle, when the God of the Lost makes its move. It comes in the form of a bear, but not really. It tells Trisha in other words that it has possessed the bear. Now the reader can interpret this in two ways. One, that the thing that she's felt in the woods has been a bear the entire time and still is, and everything she senses that's paranormal about it is a result of her hallucination. Or, that the thing really is the god of the lost, and everything that she's experienced in the woods has gone down exactly as it's been presented. As it comes for her, it challenges her to give in to her fear, which she does not. In fact, she rears back in a pitcher's stance to throw her Walkman in the style of Tom Gordon. In that moment, the God of the Lost recognizes this as a defiant gesture, and at that moment, a hunter spots the two and shoots the bear. Thus, pretty much closing out the story of, of Trisha, uh, the girl who loved Tom Gordon. So, now I want to talk about characters. So, Trisha, clearly this is Trisha's show. We get to know everything there is to know about her and about the world through her eyes. Through her, King captures the raw emotional pain of a recent divorce and the anger that's directed at her mother, forcing them on family trips that end in arguing, and her father for trash-talking her mother and her brother Pete for only caring about himself. Though she's nine years old, she's extremely well-adjusted. Just look at her thought process as they get ready for their hike. When she thinks about something and chuckles, she's asked, what's funny? Just me thinks, she answers, which is a pet phrase shared by her and her father. This causes her mother to frown and for Trisha to think, let her frown all she wants. I'm with her and I don't complain about it like Grouchy over there, but he's still my dad and I still love him. It's an honest thought. It's a diplomatic thought. She's not prone to throwing temper tantrums or starting fights, not like her older brother Pete who might be chronologically older, but emotionally younger. Now, children like to punish their parents. It's a natural sensation, one popularized by the parental favorite, I wish I'd never been born. Why do children say this but to punish their parents? It's the same reason why Tom Sawyer faked his own death, hoping to get satisfaction as he watched everyone at his own funeral. Trisha's line of thinking is similar here. She chooses to go to the bathroom the moment... She does because she wants her mother and brother to turn around to discover that she isn't there. She uses the need to pee as an excuse, but when it's time to get the job done, she finds that she can't. 
The catalyst for the entire novel is grounded in a very real and very recognizable emotional truth. Once lost, her reactions show that she's a well-adjusted girl. Yeah, she panics, and who wouldn't? But she also knows how to keep calm, how to conserve her food, and that her best bet is finding a scream. Although she has a good head screwed on her shoulders, and although she's emotionally older than her brother, she never reads like a nine-year-old girl. I remember reading The Shining and thinking how well King managed to encapsulate the thought process of a five-year-old Danny Torrance. Trisha is nine. And at times I think to myself, yes, she's nine, but there are other times her thoughts or observations are too adult for the character's age. Whether she thinks to herself, I have to conserve my food. Or when she smears mud on her face, she looks at her reflection in the water and thinks about Black Little Sambo. No nine-year-old girl in 1999 is going to know who the hell Little Black Sambo is. As she makes her way through the forest, she learns lessons. She learns perseverance. She learns to cope. She learns gratitude. She learns to make the best out of a worst situation. She's an incredibly strong character. The novel would not work without her. And though I might have said that, there are times, you know, she she does not read like a nine-year-old girl. I would say that the novel is a success simply because Stephen King once again crafted an incredible character. Now let's talk about God and faith. Now since Carrie, his very first book, King has written of faith. His first thesis explored the dangers of religious zealotry with the mania of Margaret White. He followed it up with the empty faith of Father Callahan of Salem's Lot. Roland's journey to the Dark Tower is a religious one. And most recently, we've witnessed the exploration of faith through a very positive lens, and that was David Carver's relationship with God in the pages of Desperation. Well, I'm sorry. No, actually, even um, closer to that was Mike Anderson from Storm of the Century and his relationship with God, and he's tested by God in the form of, of uh, devilish Andre Linoge, who comes to, uh, to take the children of Little Tall Island. Now, over the years, King has created his own interpretation of a godlike presence, which is less of a Judeo-Christian figure with a white beard looking down from beyond the clouds, but a presence, a force, simply known as the white. It has appeared in numerous novels during a time when the main characters have needed a boost, and King has even referenced it in his own life in the pages of the introduction to Four Past Midnight. In Desperation... King opted to focus on a more traditional examination of God rather than the one that can encompass all religions like he had been when he wrote of the white. Now here he follows this thread with the girl who loved Tom Gordon as Trisha thinks back to a conversation she had with her father about the existence of God, a concept that he doesn't believe in, but instead opts for a belief, as I mentioned earlier, in the subaudible. In her father's mind, God is what we traditionally categorize as having a hand in our day-to-day -day lives, whereas the subaudible is a force that's there, but one that we've tuned out. The subaudible isn't interested in day-to-day -day operations. During her trials and tribulations in the forest, Trisha is uh, going to go back and forth from a belief in God to a belief in the subaudible. And like the romantic poets you studied in your English class, belief in either whether it's God with a capital G or the subaudible, um, either is filtered through her experience of nature, as seen on page 82. 
The coldly beautiful face of the moon suggested to her that the subaudible was more plausible after all, a god who didn't know he or it was a god, one with no interest in lost little girls, one with no real interest in anything, a knocked-out, loaded god whose mind was like a circling cloud of bugs and whose eye was the rapt and vacant moon. And like any of us, when we are throwing up in the watery grips of diarrhea, um... <laughs> We always, I mean, I think this happens to every single one of us, when this is happening, we try to make a deal with God um, that we will do anything he wants us to do if he just makes it stop. And later she finds peace in the woods and sees a holy presence in relation to cause and effect, something more in line with the teachings of the Dalai Lama than Jesus Christ. Uh, starting on page 140. On the far side of the rushing stream, there was a little clearing carpeted with pine needles. Sunlight fell into it in bright yellow bars filled with slow dancing pollen and the wood dust. Butterflies also played in this light, dipping and swooping. Trisha crossed her hands on her belly where the roaring was now still and watched the butterflies. In that moment, she did not miss her mother, father, brother, or best friend. In that moment, she did not even want to go home. Although she ached all over and her butt stung and itched and chafed when she walked. In that moment, she was at peace. And more than at peace. She was experiencing her life's greatest contentment. If I get out of this, I'll never be able to tell them, she thought. She watched the butterflies on the other side of the stream, her eyelids drooping. There were two white ones. The third was velvety dark, brown or maybe black. Tell them what, sugar? It was the tough tootsie, but for once she didn't sound cold, only curious. What there really is, how simple, just to eat. Why, just to have something to eat, and then to be full afterward. The subaudible, Trisha said. She watched the butterflies, two white and one dark, all three dipping and darting in the afternoon sun. She thought of little black Sambo up in the tree, the tigers running around down below and wearing his fine new clothes, running and running until they melted and turned into butter, into what her dad called G. Her right hand came unlaced from her left, rolled over, and thumped palm up to the ground. It seemed like it was too much work to put it back, so Trisha let it stay where it was. The subaudible, what, sugar? What about it? Well, Trisha said in a slow, sleepy, concerning voice, it's not like that's nothing, is it? The tough Tootsie didn't reply. Trisha was glad. She felt so sleepy, so full, so wonderful. She didn't sleep, though. Even later, when she knows she must have slept, it didn't seem as if she had. She remembered thinking about her dad's backyard behind the newer, smaller house, how the grass needed cutting and the, long, and the lawn dwarves looked sly, as if they knew something you didn't, and about how dad had started to look sad and old to her, with that smell of beer always coming out of his pores. Life could be very sad, it seemed to her, and mostly it was what it could be. People made belief that it wasn't, and they lied to their kids. No movie or television program she had ever seen had prepared her for losing her balance and plopping back into her own crap, for instance, so as to not scare them or bum them out, but yeah, it could be sad. The world had teeth, and it could bite you with them any time it wanted. She knew that now. She was only nine, but she knew it, and she thought she could accept it. She was almost ten, after all, and big for her age. Um, she's then confronted by the emissaries of the three gods, Tom Gordon's God, the subaudible, and the God of the Lost, who functions in this story as Tack had done in desperation. It's a God made out of despair. 
Being lost doesn't mean that you can't orient yourself physically. More importantly, it's a mindset where you believe you're beyond the point of being found. It suggests hopelessness. In other words, despair. Ultimately, King comes down on the side of God with a capital G. After praying to him, Trisha finds the remains of the path that takes her to civilization and salvation. When the God of the Lost confronts Trisha in the conclusion of the novel, she surrenders to the God of Tom Gordon by throwing her Walkman in the style of her favorite picture. It should also come as no surprise that you can spell the word God by using letters in the man's last name. Now, final thoughts. Um, this is an incredibly well-written novel that places us firmly in the sneakers of this nine-year-old. Between the depictions of natural terror that we would feel if we were in her position, King constantly peppers in life observations, details that make the adventure that much more harrowing, and emotional truths that make for a quick but ultimately satisfying read. So there are two quotes that I want to share with you that... I think, sum up the, the major themes of the novel. Uh, the first comes on page 140. And I had just read this. Um, it's So just to kind of sum up, it's just her saying, if I never get out of this, if I get out of this, I'll never be able to tell them. So this, this aspect here of being able to find the best in the situation of that cause and effect of eating coming with the, the sensation of fulfillment afterwards that she has learned a life lesson out in the woods, I think that that is important. Um, and the second one being that, that life could be very sad. So I think that what I just read really speaks to some, some major concepts that he is dealing with here. Okay, guys, what I want to deal now, what I want to do now, I just want to read uh, the Stephen Kingisms, the first of which is baseball. Uh, Stephen King is a major, major Red Sox fan. He loves his baseball, so it's no surprise that he that he finally has written a novel where baseball um, is at the, the forefront of the narrative. Number two is child characters. We've had Charlie McGee, we've had Jack Sawyer, we've had Jake Chambers, we've had Danny Torrance, we've had The Losers, we've had David Carter from Desperation. The The, the list goes on and on and on and on. Um, King loves writing about uh, children characters. Number three is J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, King is a major fan of the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, and you know, almost nearly every book he, he writes, there's some mention of Tolkien. Um, you know, it's been mentioned in the Talisman and the Dark Tower novels, in The Stand. Uh, and then here, Trisha thinks that she's Bilbo Baggins on his way to the Misty Mountains. Uh, and then we have Baby Bunting, Daddy's Gone a-Hunting. King first incorporated this particular nursery rhyme into the Talisman, I believe. Number five is the dream, right? The, the ever-present Stephen King dream. Every character in every Stephen King novel usually has some sort of prophetic or um, surreal nightmare. And this is this one, Trisha has a dream where her father is mean, and when she opens the cellar door, wasps come flying out. Number six is characters thinking to themselves in different voices. Mike Noonan had the UFO voice. Jesse Burlingame had a number of voices rattling around her head. Uh, and then same thing here with, with Trisha. She has uh, different voices. Now this allows King to write characters in isolated situations, but to be able to interact with someone at the same time, even if it's their own mind. 
Number seven is it. The God of the Lost is named it, capitalized and italicized at one point, which is a, it's got to be a, a knowing shout out to, to Stephen King's very popular 1986 novel. And number eight is the monster bear. So the God of the Lost manifests itself as a master, as a um, monster bear here, which isn't the first time that we have seen a monster bear. We have seen Shardik, the uh, giant robotic bear, in the pages of the Wastelands. Okay, guys, and very much lastly on our plate, we have two Easter eggs, which is our Stephen King uh, shout-outs to other works, the first being TR-90, the um, unnamed uh, tract of land inhabited by the characters of Bag of Bones uh, surrounding Dark Score Lake in Maine, and we also have Castle Rock, Trisha... Uh, gets a radio station from Castle Rock that she's able to listen to. Castle Rock, of course, being the very famous fictional town of Stephen King's fictional works. And that's all I got this week, guys. Thanks for sticking around, listening to my review of this very short but uh, very, very fun novel by Stephen King. And make sure that you stick around next week as I head into my review of... Uh, Hearts in Atlantis, the, the, the 1999 collection of novellas and short stories that examines, that allows Stephen King to examine his, his own generation, the baby boomers, um, from childhood into middle age. It's a very fascinating read, and it's one that I'm looking forward to, to getting to. I will also be reviewing the uh, movie... Uh, of the same name, which is an adaptation of the short story within that collection, Low Men in Yellow Coats. So if you have not done so already, feel free to head on over to iTunes uh, to write a subscription or to write a review and subscribe to it. Feel free, as always, to write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. And until next week, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next week where M O O N spells Stephen Kingcast. Cast.